Hey there, this is food writer Jamie Lewis, welcoming you to another episode of The Consumed Podcast, where I hold candid and casual conversations with people across California's central coast, the ones who put food on our plates and drinks in our glass. I'm so glad you're here. Before we get to this episode's guest, I want to share a word from Consumed Sponsors. Do you want to be more intentional about the meat you eat and feed your family? Have you even considered giving up eating meat entirely because you can no longer justify supporting the inhumane and industrialized system that brings meat to your dinner table? If you're looking for a simple way to guarantee you always have access to healthy, sustainably farmed meat and wild seafood, the Larder Meat Co. is here to help. Since 2016, Larder Meat Co. has been delivering farm-raised beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and wild seafood sourced from right here in the Golden State to customers who demand the highest quality proteins as well as intentional sourcing standards and transparency. A convenient club box from Larder Meat Co. makes it easy to automate the most important part of your monthly food budget. You can build a custom box or choose from one of the many curated bundles that LMC offers. As a Larder Meat Co. customer, you are supporting the ever-dwindling ranching industry that has fed us for generations, and you're building a sustainable future for your family, our ranchers, and the planet. Use code CONSUMED at checkout to save $25 on your first subscription and check healthy farm-raised meat and wild seafood off your grocery list for good. That's LarderMeatCo.com. Promo code CONSUMED for $25 off your first subscription. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers Cargo Storage Containers and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods, for private collections, and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. My guest from Season 10, Krista Flieger, from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Mid-State Container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a mid-state container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Okay, on to the episode. It's not every day you meet a seaweed forager, but on California's Central Coast, that's definitely a thing. Spencer Marley has become the local authority on sea foraging and gleaning and hosts seaweed foraging tours along Highway 1 that have been covered in the LA Times, Sunset Magazine, Washington Post, and probably a billion other places I'm forgetting or unaware of. 
My family took a tour just a few days before my conversation with Spencer, and we absolutely loved it. I am not exaggerating. We learned how to identify several different types of seaweed, which ones are good for eating, others good for seasoning, and still others for skincare. I'm looking at you, Turkish towel. The best part of the tour is watching Spencer craft a simple seaweed ramen on his camp stove and then serving it in little bowls right there on the beach. Here we talk about Spencer's background as a fisherman and merchant marine, his graduate work in psychology at Cal Poly University, and how seaweed foraging and leading tours has become the passion of his life. Here is Spencer Marley. So Spencer, yeah, you took me out on Saturday with my family yes. to um, Estero Bluffs. Sandron, should I share or is it not okay to say where you no, go? No, no, share. It's public, public spot. But it's not like Chantrell's where you won't tell people. I am not a mushroom forager and I teeter that line between like open source, like, you know, educating people about where to do stuff and also keeping certain secret spots. And I think, like mm -hmm. I said, you know, like my, I'll keep the Wakame spots more or less secret. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll give you the general area, but I've had a lot of people ask me and I'm reticent to give that one away. Sure. But yeah, Estera Bluffs, you know, that's where we go. That's where everybody goes now. Yeah. And there's a lot of seaweed there. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you take that corner on Highway 1, once you pass, what is it like? I mean, once you get past Cayucas right. and you hang a right around that bend, uh, all of a sudden you look out the ocean and there is so much, well, it's perfectly still. Would you say? I mean, it seems so still there. Oh, inside Point Estero? Yes. Between like Cayucas proper and, and Point Estero? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does pick up swell and that's why we're able to do the glean harvesting and stuff yeah. like that in there. But I mean, the protection from the like Northwest swell, I think is what makes that place a little more conducive to certain species of seaweed growing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a phycologist, so I'm just speaking as like a purely like a, you know, harvester, but mm -hmm. that that would be my guess, you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's a unique area. Um it has a lot of different species of seaweed and like I said, I mean, like we were talking about the glean foraging, you know, that's the direction that I'm going in and that's what I would like everyone else to do. So mm -hmm. it's just the conditions are perfect for that. Yeah. You were very careful when we went out to say, you know, you never should over glean. You know, you should always leave a certain... Didn't you say that? You said something about like not going nuts and taking everything. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, that's a good like axiom, I think, for people to have in general, but like mostly with foraging, actually. So like cutting it off the rocks, like mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of just cutting a ton of seaweed I off the rocks. I think that's what you said. Yeah. yeah. Gleaning. I mean, it's all started its process of degradation. So that's right. why I'm kind of like, hey, it's just going to end up, you know, disintegrating into the sand or being, you know, snacked on by a wild boar. Right. Picked on or, you know, used as a nursery for kelp flies. So, yeah why not take it and eat it as so much, the, I mean, as much as you want, right? So glean foraging, you know what? I didn't actually pick up on that. So that's when stuff is already detached, washed right. up. Um, and you said that that stuff is only about six hours old. Yeah. In general, I mean, it seems to me like, you know, the tide cycle comes in and you know, these are, a lot of these are annuals. So they grow out and then they drop their spores and they reproduce and then they get too top heavy. And then a wave comes along and knocks them off their hold fast, you know, root, root structure. Cause you know, the root structure isn't buried yeah. under anything. The root structure is on top of the, 
the clean. substrate. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah, physically clinging to the rock or the coral or whatever. Um, or other seaweed. So it gets too top heavy and then the wave dislodges it and it'll just wash it in at high tide. So yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be only, you know, six to 12 hours mm -hmm. old. Um, and then obviously like, well, not obviously, uh, cause we're on a podcast. So it's kind of, <laughs> nothing's it's kind obvious. Of, yeah. Nothing's <laughs> obvious. Right. Um, when you walk along the beach though, and you see like, seaweed that's washed up on the beach like anywhere around here you know that stuff is recent i mean mm -hmm. it came in at the high the, the the previous high tide or the high tide the day before or, you know that seaweed dries out pretty fast and yeah so yeah i mean anything that you find that's like plump and hydrated and like looks mm -hmm. edible um in my experience it is totally edible yeah and like if i was stuck on a desert island i mean that that cheesy analogy that you know i try to avoid but i end up saying i every love that tour, analogy it's like if you're stuck on a desert <laughs> island you could totally boil the funky stuff and eat it and yes. you'd be you you know you could keep yourself alive yeah and i'm trying not to give all the secrets away of your tour because i want people to be able to be inspired to go on it i don't want to i don't want you to give the whole spiel now but you did say that all um, all saltwater seaweed is edible. Maybe not delicious, but non-toxic, let's it, say. Yes. Non-toxic. Yeah, non-toxic. And yeah, and also too, um, I was going to say, I mean, uh, we can talk as much about the tour as you want to. I, in general, like my, it's kind of odd because like I, you know, started into this foraging thing via like fishing and hunting. And like, I was always one of those people where I, I was, I could never afford a guide or like mm -hmm. someone to show me how to do something. So it's a little odd being on like that side of the fence now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like people that want to come on this tour, you know, they're looking to hire a guide and they want to have a conversation they want to see the right way to do it. And so like I offer that service, but I know that if I was listening to this podcast and I was curious about harvesting seaweed, um, that, you know, ultimately, like, I wouldn't probably be able to pay for my own services. So Perhaps. I would just try to figure it out on my own. And I think that there's, you know, a need for that, too. Like, exploration, I think, is good for people's souls and for their spirit. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. like, sometimes a little bit of free knowledge is what you need to, to go out and do that, That's, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's generous of you, too, because uh, we've all been somebody who's curious about something and had um, some kind of a you know, a helping hand, whether that was something we researched or, you know, we read something that was well-researched and that gave us the confidence to go out and learn more. So perhaps a conversation like this would do that for someone. You seem like somebody who is really good and adept and experienced in figuring things out for yourself. Like if you're curious about something or interested in it, you're pretty good about going and chasing that down. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we were talking about kids earlier and I was that kid that would have like a lot of interests for eight months and then I would move on to something else and kind of <laughs> obsess with that. And I think as an adult, I've narrowed those things down and they all pretty much revolve around, um, you know, foraging and, and hunting and, you know, fishing, commercial fishing in general was a huge part of my life for a long time, but I've, uh, it, that chapter's kind of closed, hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, all the things, you know, seaweed is is just such a big part of who I am, like I think I was saying on yeah. the tour, and like my life, and so uh, I don't mind like obsessing over it and nerding out about it, and 
and you know i kind of want other would i would like more people to have there are things like that that mm-hmm. you know what does Marie Kondo say spark joy or something <laughs> not mat- not like your clothes but you know activities <sighs> yeah. I guess you know it's nice to have an activity that gets you excited other than just like work and family and whatever yeah. other obligations that we have in modern life yeah well in a ad- I'm jumping the gun here but in addition to seaweed and work you work at Cal Poly but you have been really scrappy and nimble with taking your work at Cal Poly to apply it to grad school to get your, is it your uh, uh, marriage and family therapy license or your psychology yeah. major? Yeah, well, yeah, it would, yeah. Grad my student. ultimate goal is to be just like a psychotherapist. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, in a way you're kind of gleaning there too, right? Using what you've got to develop another interest. Yeah. Um, I think that's so great. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the goal would be, and I don't know how practical, I think it's pretty practical. Um, it could be a little naive, but that's all right. Um, would be to do, uh, outdoor therapy sessions one-on-one for people that have trauma and, and issues that they don't necessarily want to be in a hospital setting. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, some people heal like myself, like I heal in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm not going to heal somewhere that has like white walls and fluorescent lights and stethoscopes. Mm-hmm. And like, that just doesn't, it's super important. I'm not knocking, um, hospitals. So, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it just, as far as like for that level of care, you know, mm-hmm. for someone that just needs to talk through their issues, um, and we're not talking about medication or anything like that, mm-hmm. but like what a psychotherapist would do just talking through your issues. Like I, th- I believe there's a lot of power in like doing that in an outdoor environment mm-hmm. and also too, like not to be too soapboxy, but like, I think with all the complexities of the modern world, like getting back to harvesting our food in the wild and things like that, you know, it speaks to a more primitive sense mm-hmm. of humanity and, and it like counterbalances like the busyness, I think, and complexity of modern life. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I am going to paint with a really broad brush, but I, I have noticed in several men I know and I'm close to that sitting and chatting about something isn't really, that's, that maybe isn't the best way for them to process feelings and thoughts that they're far more comfortable talking if they're doing something shoulder to shoulder. And so maybe that's something also, because I know you have a heart for, um, trauma work with men. Um, at least I think you said that earlier on Saturday. Yeah. yeah, Um, and so that's the kind of thing, if you're going out and doing something, even if it's just, you know, beachcombing or whatever it is, um, you might have, it might have more of a, a toehold if you, if you do it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, I haven't thought, I've actually never thought of that. So mm-hmm. I like really appreciate that insight. Um, yeah, I have, I found the same thing and I know that I've felt the same things mm-hmm. before. I'm only half, you know, a little, I don't know, around halfway through this, you know, training program. So, I mean, I'm just in like the toddler phase of any of this, mm-hmm. but it, it seems to fit. And I think it's going to be a really cool journey. Like I'm just figuring out 
who I am as a person. <laughs> Aren't we so, all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, an ongoing process, but especially like recently, I think. So, you know, that's probably the biggest cornerstone of being able to help anyone else is to know yourself really well. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we're learning in, in, in my coursework right now. So I think that's that's kind of the phase I'm at with it. I mean, it, the outdoor therapy thing is a goal. I think it's an awesome goal. I like to keep it in my head as something to work towards. Mm-hmm. I don't know how those pieces necessarily fit together, yeah. but there's also a certain like piece in the in just surrendering the fact that like I don't have to know how that fits together. Like nope. it's just gonna, it'll happen or doors will close, doors will open. Yeah, you know that's exactly. sort of that's life. For, we take risks, right? I mean, we yeah. We behave as if it's going to happen, and then if it doesn't, I don't know. Just you've taken a lot of risks. You've started things like the foraging business or the the foraging tours. I mean, it takes a certain amount of risk to put yourself out there like that. Will anybody sign up? Will I mean, here are the common, you know, risk taking inner critic voices. Will anybody be into it? Will they all laugh at me? I, you know, is it a waste of my time? Um, all of those things. And I, I hope, and I'm sure you've seen that in your case, the foraging tours have been, I mean, none of that has come to pass. It's all been, from my perspective, very, very successful. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, I started off, like I think I was telling you on the tours and, you know, I'll spare everyone the, the lengthy story. But, you know, I started off harvesting and trying to sell at farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was the... God, the first one to do that in a long time in this county. Um, all because I was at the farmer's market with my ex and she bought some microgreens from a guy, Gracious Greens. And <laughs> it was, you know, quite a bit of money for the microgreens. And I and it was like a purely capitalist thing. Like the light bulb went off and I was like, I had this experience of commercial fishing and like owning this little salmon boat that I kind of failed miserably at doing. Um, and I was like, oh, well... I could harvest some seaweed, like I, you know, know this, and so it was purely capitalist. And then people would come up to me at the farmers markets and go, like, "That's such a cool thing! Like, can we come out?" And I'm like, you know, an extrovert. I like talking to people. I'm <laughs> like, "Yeah, pay my gas money, and <laughs> I'll show you how to do it." <laughs> so it just it organically turned into the tours, and then, um, you know, I took a break from the farmers markets over, you know, then the very thick, thick, um periods of COVID when I thought, you know, essential, I'm working at Cal Poly, I'm forced to interact with people. Like the last thing I want to do is like contaminate a bunch of like ramen kits and get, (laughs) you know, I mean, and so that's not to get too far off into the weeds on that. But so I, I took a break for a while and, and then, you know, when things started to open back up, I was doing these tours, they were outside, they were safe. I had a lot of like young like ER doctors from LA who were coming up and they were like oh like I love foraging and this is like one of the only things I feel safe doing right now so it just organically transitioned into like more of a tour business and then you know the press sort of came with that Mm -hmm. um but yeah it was not like definitely not a forced path like I didn't I mean I think I just took the risk and like saying, oh, that might be cool to do. And then everything else just sort of like fell into place. Mm -hmm. When's the first time you tasted seaweed? When's the first time you actually used it for something? Oh, when I was really young, I grew up in the Bay Area and my parents, you know, were very like adventurous and, um, and also, you know, like with culinary stuff. So, I mean, I think maybe like three or four, I remember having like miso soup at a Japanese restaurant Mm -hmm. 
um, my neighbors were Japanese too, growing up in San Jose, Japanese American, actually, they, they were more American than my family. Yeah. So it would, yeah, I shouldn't say Japanese, they're a Japanese American family. And so like miso soup, you know, I had that, I think I remember I was like four years old and, and I was eating like the little wakame squares in there. Mm. And my dad was like, you know what that is? And I'm like, no, I don't I have no idea. It's good. And he was like, oh, it's seaweed. And I was like, oh, fair enough. Hmm. Hmm, that's very young. I mean, you know, for for um, a white American kid, you know, that's really young for us to be yeah. adventurous like that. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I, I kind of did the opposite. Like, I was really adventurous with food when I was younger, mm-hmm. and now I pretty much eat, like, oatmeal and seaweed and <laughs> barley and, like, <laughs> you know, the, joy, man. the joys of getting, yeah, like, whatever I can catch or possibly hunt because it's, like, I, you know, as I get older, like, I'm, you know, allergic to certain things or yeah. trying to lose weight or trying to be healthier, you know, yeah. and so then it kind of, like, it's, like, that reverse... Um, what is that journalism term for like a reverse lead or something like that? Oh, I don't know. Like a, for like a feature story, you know, I don't know, something like that. Is that where you lead out with something small about the person, like something personal about them rather than a reporting story where you're like such and such happened at such and such place and that kind of thing? Yeah. It was something where you like start with, um, like the least, or, or something like that. I was trying to draw that analogy between like starting off like very vast and then like narrowing it down, I yes, think. Yeah. And that's like sort of how my food journey's been. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my grandma like had a chocolate shop, like she made truffles by hand and stuff when I was growing up and she was like in Napa and friends with all the winery owners, you know, the Fetzer family. And so like we would go up there and like, I'd eat like mussels, you know, and things like that yeah. when I was a little kid. And like now, like I'm allergic to shellfish and, right. you know, uh, very, I don't know, just the opposite, you know? Yeah. I haven't it, started cutting the crust off my bread, but. <laughs> just you're right around <laughs> yeah, the corner, I'm sure. Right around the corner. It's so funny to have you here right now because I asked Corbin, my son, to get all of the dried Turkish towels that you helped instruct him to dry. They were hanging in the backyard. He brought them in in this paper bag that's porous, obviously, and it smells like seaweed in here. So I'm like, I think every time I see you, I'm going to associate that aroma with going out with you, which was so fun. Yeah, it's like a classical conditioning in the yes. ol- in olfactory sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you grew up in San Jose. Yeah. And you're Swiss. Uh, your grandmother, right? The chocolatier? I'm, yeah, I'm like, yeah, 75% like Swiss German, basically. Yeah. And then a little Turkish, so. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so you grow up there and you ended up studying journalism at, was it Cal Poly? No, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It was Cal Poly. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, what made you want to do that? Um, I went to architecture school and I almost failed out. And here? Here at Cal yeah. Poly. And I was like really floundering, like my whole twenties was like basically floundering around, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of like adventures and stuff like that, but just very lost. Um, and so, yeah, I, my dad was a photojournalism major at San Jose state and, you know, he like dropped out and worked at sunset magazine and then started like a really successful business taking photographs for tech companies and stuff. And so like, it was, it's kind of in. I guess it felt like safer and easier mm-hmm. and I'm basically just an artist at heart. Like mm-hmm. I don't, 
I was fine at building like models and things like that. But when it came to like mathematics and like figuring out like how to, I mean, I remember I had to take some statics class and I just like handed the paper in blank. And I was like, I'm done. Like yeah. I can't, I just, my brain can't handle this. I just wasn't prepared, wasn't mature enough, wasn't dedicated enough. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to do something that was a little bit artistic. So I sort of switched to the photo side of the journalism department at the time, which was, there weren't many people taking photos. So it was like easy to kind of, it was an easy, safe bet. Isn't it crazy though to think that going becoming a journalism major you considered safer than being an architecture major? I mean, because gosh, journalism is just a quagmire right now. Yeah. But you are not the first person to say that you flopped out of architecture. I mean, I think it's just the most grueling program over there. It could be. I mean, I think there's a lot of them. But I mean, ultimately, you know, I flopped out of journalism too. That was just, mm. and, you know, then went to work on fishing boats and then became a merchant marine and did that for quite a few years and um, and then went back like to finish my degree because I didn't want to be gone two thirds of the year out at sea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, my like twenties were definitely like flip a lot of flopping out of stuff and mm -hmm. quitting things and being confused and like, hadn't really figured out how to take those risks and like live the kind of adventurous life that I wanted to live, but also like be responsible and like take care of myself and be, you know, good to myself and be good to other people. And mm -hmm. that was all just like, you know, kind of a blur and a mess, I think. Yeah. Why was it a mistake to have that salmon boat? You said that on Saturday and I didn't get why. You know, uh, that's a really, I think you should be the therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Monetarily, it was a mistake. I mm. lost a lot. I lost a lot, a, quite a bit of money um, doing that. And I also, there's a recurring theme. And I think there's a recurring theme with like men that we goes back to what we were talking about with therapy where like, we all sort of want to be tough in a certain way, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, or we're taught that like sensitivity is bad. And so I had this 26 foot boat and it was like, I had to fish by myself and I had to fish bad weather mm. and it felt like very unsafe, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. And one of my, my buddies, who's the third generation commercial fisherman, who I just totally respect, you know, he would say things like, oh man, you know, just don't be afraid. Like, just go charge it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I did charge it, like, I would feel like, oh man, like this is pushing the outer limits to where like, if I sank this thing, like I might not come back to my kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'd had a, a lot of other experiences at sea that were like, you know, um, couple, couple times it, it like I was staring down the barrel. Mm -hmm. And so I just had to realize like that this is outside of my comfort zone. And if it is outside of my comfort zone, like in that vessel under those circumstances, like I couldn't make any money. Mm -hmm. So I think the reason, you know, it was a monetary failure, but it was also when you stare at those things in yourself that maybe make you uncomfortable, it was like, all of this thing about, you know, conquering the sea and being a mariner and like working mm -hmm. at sea and was, there was a lot of like toxic masculinity bullshit that was wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. And so not wanting to go out in my own little boat and be the commercial fishing frontiersman that I'd maybe built up in my head that I was mm -hmm. like seeing that 
uh, ego thing kind of crack apart. You know, it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that like, I can take risks, but I don't have to be reckless. Yeah, yeah. For what it looks like. Right. Uh, yeah. It's so interesting that you say that. I haven't had nearly enough, um, like, fishers people. What do we call them now? I don't know what else to say. Fishermen. I haven't had enough people who make their living off the ocean on this podcast. I know that. Well, Part- well but so, so my point is, though, the people I have had on, um, people you know, uh, one of them being Mark Tognazzini. When he came on, he talked about how the only time I felt him kind of crack in our conversation is when he talked about being run aground off the coast of, I think he said off San Simeon or something, right. and uh, off Piedras Blancas, and being so scared and a friend coming to get him and save him. That is the, I mean, he was emotional about that. Uh, I think, well, and then I think about my brother-in-law, Bryant, uh, my, my husband's brother, who was a Navy, uh, in the Navy, left the Navy and uh, bought a sailboat and sailed. It was like this thing he had to do. He sailed from Coronado to Hawaii alone. And... Uh, it's like a defining moment of his life. So much of this stuff transpires on the, on the ocean. I don't know. There's just, maybe it is that sense of not being able to control it or, um, you know, like you say, wanting to conquer it that draws these big life moments out of people. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually pretty terrified of the ocean. <laughs> I, on our honeymoon, we were in Zihuataneo and I went out to swim and I, I had always loved swimming in the ocean and I went out there and it was just like pounding shore break. Um, and I got swept under and I freaked out. I panicked and Jake actually came out. He saw that I was in distress and he came out and got me and he said, I've never seen somebody as white as a sheet as you are right now. And I just, ever since then, I have not been comfortable. So yeah, it's a scary thing. It's this awesome, terrifying thing. Um, And I'm so sorry that you experienced financial I'll just, I guess you called it a failure. I'll call it a failure. No, I mean, I think that was the least. Yeah, that was probably the least. I mean, that's, it's the easiest to verbalize, right? Yeah. But I did want to go back to the thing about um, commercial fishermen, how you're talking about, you know, you haven't had a lot of them on on the show. No, I haven't. Well, so the the thing is this, like, you know, Mark Tognazine, I mean, he's the real deal. He is. The guys that the guy that taught me how to fish, Fred Arnaldi, like he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there's there's a few of them out there, but nowadays there are too many people that are like wealthy people who watch the deadliest catch or they retired <laughs> from PG and E and they got a bunch of money and they want to play like they're and so they go and they get nice big old boats and they might maybe buy a permit and you know, they make money because, but they also like, they don't, they don't need it. You know, they're, they're not paying like for their, you know, rent or their mortgage or their kids bills by catching fish. Yes. Right. So like when you, 
And I mean, I, I only really knew that, that pressure, you know, mostly as a crew member, um, because like I said, you know, I just had like this little boat that was, to just end up, you know, I never was able to get that off the ground, but you know, paying my way as a, as a crew member working on long liners and things like that, you know, and it's like, I mean, if we didn't catch fish, you know, I'm not like I could get evicted. Right. Yeah. So it's a lot different. And that's, I guess the, the point that I want to make about that and about the seaweed thing too, is like, my whole thing is like authenticity. Like, so, I mean, you could interview a, a bunch of commercial fishermen out here that are going to give you some idealized, romanticized, like BS version of what it is, because like, they don't care. Like mm-hmm. they, they have a nice boat. That's pretty that someone else paints and replaces the zincs on. Like they're not going to go dive and clean their propeller on their boat. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go, they're going to haul it out every two years in Santa Barbara and go up to Brophy brothers and, <laughs> you know, go have some cocktails Sounds and tell every, nice. yeah, like, so it, it's easy to play at, at commercial fishing, just like people play at ranching you know or wineries or wineries yeah i was just thinking that yeah and so living in this area like to me there's always been this interesting dichotomy of like who's who's authentic and who's just a poser Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and so i think that that might be the real undertone of like a lot of you know people that we interact with it's like i mean there's so much money that floats around this county that like I don't necessarily know who's authentic and who's playing or looking authentic and it's yeah. a hard you know I'd rather just be real than yeah. look real or be popular or whatever. Yeah, that's so funny you say that because I've long had a I've had a hard time with um, trophy winery owners, especially given the groundwater situation in Paso, because a lot of them go to Paso and and start an operation and they are the owners and maybe they have the vision for, they have a certain variety they like or style of wine they want to emulate, but they're not the ones out there planting, uh, pruning, harvesting, you know, in the cellar, washing tanks out. They're not those people. And there isn't anything wrong with that. I mean, let's be real. There's nothing wrong with that. What's difficult is when we play at, like you said, play at um, talking about risk. Like, let's talk about real risk. Right. People who have nothing have to take this loan out and fight hard to pay their loan with mother earth you know really at her mercy um that's a more interesting story and i think a more um you know tons more risk there but also more rewarding story i guess when there's real when there's something really at stake um i don't mind i i'm I'm not a person who has to fight for space in morro bay harbor um (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't bother me <laughs> that people are out yeah. there. I know. But but uh, I really, I, it doesn't bother me that there are people out there playing at commercial fishing so much. But um, but it's a different, you're right, it's a different beast. Yeah, it doesn't, um, yeah, I guess it's one of those things, you know, with, with uh, the ubiquitousness of content and like social media and things mm-hmm. like that where I feel like those lines get blurred like and and also it's not mutually exclusive like people can buy their way into things and then become authentic because their money bought them into it totally so I'm not saying that somebody that like goes out and buys a commercial fishing boat and then all of a sudden and all of a sudden they suck <laughs> yeah or or they like learn the hard lessons that like 
you know, I had to learn, right? Mm -hmm. So like it goes both ways. Like you can buy the fancy boat and all that stuff, but then if you go out and have those experiences, those humbling experiences, and then you still decide to push forward and do it, mm -hmm. um, you know, my hat goes off, off to you for yeah. that. Like it's not some like, you know, Marxist like proletariat like rant, you know, mm -hmm. but it's also, like I said, it's a recurring theme that like I find, especially around here, like you said, you know, with certain winery owners or certain fishermen or certain ranchers and mm -hmm. it's like you're not the real deal but you're at the forefront telling everyone that you're a real How deal it is. yeah so it's yeah. more like that old school like i was raised old school to just like go about your business quietly and authentically and that's where the val value i think is like in even in like a capitalist sense you know like if you're authentic and you just go about what you do um let other people do the bragging for you yeah. Yeah. Or not, right? Or not. Yeah. Or just have nothing said about you. Like you said, ubiquitous content, constant positioning and posturing, which I am a hundred percent guilty of. Um, I think we all now are kind of conditioned to do we that. Ha I think you have to, yeah. I mean, I have to, we were talking about the, you, you don't know. have Instagram anymore. I do not. And I won't. Yeah. Yeah. Which I totally respect. I respect. I mean, if you want to be authentic, cut that cord. It's definitely cost me business. Has it? I would. Oh yeah, I would say. Yeah. For sure. And but I mean, and I'm so fortunate that I work at Cal Poly mm -hmm. that my seaweed tours aren't. You know, I don't. If it's not what I have, it's not my only avenue to feed my kids or pay the bills. Yeah. Um. So I can make those value choices. I think just because I'm fortunate. Mm -hmm. You know. But I mean. That gets into the whole nother rabbit hole of like, I mean, I've, you know, worked pretty hard to get to my spot at Cal Poly, I feel mm -hmm. like. So it might not just be luck or fate or whatever, right. you know? Right. I know that is a rabbit hole. Um, I've been really open about the fact that my husband makes most of the money um, and that I couldn't do this if it weren't for him working really hard. I just, I, I would never want somebody to say, See the projects that I do. I mean, including writing. I, I mean, I do work hard when I write, but um, but I don't necessarily have to. And so I wouldn't want any. I never. I never. Um, you know. I'm not forming my thoughts very well. I wouldn't want anyone to watch what I'm doing or starting a podcast or getting into media or whatever it is and think, why can't I do that? Well, there's a really good reason probably that you can't. It's that you don't have time and you can't make enough money doing it. So um, it's super unfortunate if this is your passion and you can't do it, but I just want to be up front and say, this is not a realistic, um, I'm, I'm living very privileged existence. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's a really interesting take on it. I think having been through my uh, marriage and marriage and couples course mm. and having been through marriages, uh, <laughs> plural. Um, More than one. Two, yeah. Yeah. I, I realized though that it's a partnership, right? And so mm -hmm. that's not just, it's not, so many people make things about like money or like this person does this so this person can do this yeah. and this and that like I mean, think about how much value the these podcasts i mean just in in our interaction right now and anyone that hears this like such an intimate format right yeah so it's also like 
I just don't believe in like assigning monetary value to things because yeah, maybe one partner makes more than the other, but like the work that the other person doing is like maybe benefiting humanity in this way Mm -hmm. or that way. And so I think when you're in a partnership, like it's really about shared goals. And so like, you know, this thing that you're doing is, is like very noble, almost in like the way that, you know, uh, Anthony Bourdain like brought people together across cultures and open Mm -hmm. conversation through the lens of food. Like, you know, I remember, I mean, that's my kind of era when that, when, you know, he wrote Kitchen Confidential, I read that and thought that book was amazing and then followed him and was obviously, you know, devastated when he took his own Mm -hmm. life. And it was, you know, that was a very, very sad moment for me. I mean, in general, like not, um, one to easily give into like celebrity worship or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, that was a heart wrenching. That one took us all by surprise. I think, I think the thing that took us by surprise wasn't so much his suicide as it was how much we all cared about him. I don't think we knew until it happened that just collectively we care about this man. He did something so important, and I think it was, we didn't, we took it for granted perhaps how special that was. And also, like, why didn't he care about himself as much as we cared about him? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the sadness of mental illness, right? Yeah. Wires crossed. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about not putting monetary value to something, and I don't mean for this to be me getting cheap therapy from you, but, um, I don't know why I put so much value on that. I don't necessarily for other people, but for myself, it's like, I have this real chip on my shoulder about if I'm not making money, then what good am I? Um, I mean, that's a very extreme version of what happens in my brain, but I think many of us do. But then, you know, to see somebody at work doing something they're passionate about, you don't think about the money when you see that happening. When I see you out on the ocean or on the seashore, so happy, so in your element, you know, teaching my husband who never had a curiosity about seaweed. And all of a sudden (laughs) he's like uncovered this. Right. We had such a good time on Saturday. It was what we needed. We needed to be out and um, we needed to get grounded and then and let's be real that ramen at the end I mean we've we've talked about it many times it was so simple what you did it's not like it's um you know culinary alchemy or anything like that but it's just yeah it's like one pot it's a (laughs) one pot and a knife yeah and like I yeah I mean I know that is funny because people are like aren't don't you put any oil in there to char the onions with and I'm like no that's what I said yeah oh that's yeah that was me yeah that's the number one question yeah yeah so just water onion garlic you I think you put a fair amount of garlic in there yeah like two two cloves yeah and then a little bit of you did sea lettuce and nori nori Mm -hmm. and a little bit of kombu Mm mm-hmm and really just a little well, co- a lot sliver. Of the, a lot of the kombu was, well, the kombu was the broth. So I put the whole, like, three big fronds in. Oh my gosh, I wasn't even that's paying what, attention. That's what flavored the whole broth. And then I took it out and cut it into those little that's slivers right. just so that's you could, right. like, kind of taste what the kombu was like at, in the final product. Right. And, you know, as people who don't care for things out of the ocean very often, to, I mean, to eat... We all were so pleasantly surprised. You saw my kids ask for seconds. Yeah. It's insane. (laughs) Yeah. It was so great. Anyway, I think that that, you know, you getting the little camp stove out, being in that protected little cove, um, 
And just any time, any time of year is beautiful out there, right? It is. Yeah. And I mean, that was like, we were talking about that on the, on the trip is cause I was asking you about how, you know, you traveled all over and then you mm-hmm. f- couldn't find anywhere better than slow. And so like, I've, you know, like most people have those same thoughts too, but it's like the Astero Bluffs is such a magical place. It is Harvesting seaweed there now that I've done it, you know, thousands of times, mm-hmm. like it's a, such a big part of the fiber of who I am to where I'm like, I don't think I can move anywhere because like I'd have to give this up. And it like, and like I said at the time, like this means everything to me, mm-hmm. you know, those one, two days a week when I get to go out there and hang out with you and Hey, meet people and meet the cool, like meet the coolest, most interesting people. And, you know, just even for a brief moment, like just, you know, have a real connection mm-hmm. and in the outdoors, it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, it's that that spot's a special spot it totally is you also have this incredible memory for facts and figures that i mean you have a you may not think of yourself as a phycologist but you have this it's almost like a citizen scientist real you have a real um memory for i don't know the important stuff of going out on a tour i mean you just have this endless information and listener if you do end up going um you know, it's really interactive. It's not like you have this spiel that everybody has to hear the exact same thing. You'll go with someone wherever their interest leads on that tour. Am I yeah. right? No, totally. And I mean, I definitely would have to give number one shout out to Lori McConico at Cal Poly. You know, her she teaches biology, but background in psychology. And she told me quite a bit about seaweed and gave me some insight as to books to read and things like that. And then, yeah, Heidi Herman up in Sonoma does like seaweed tours up there through Forage SF and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. she, you know, was kind enough to like kind of talk to me and give me a little info about how she was doing it. She was doing it before I was doing it up there in Sonoma. Yeah. So did you go on that tour? Have you? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, I want to, but I just end up kind of getting stuck in life doing my own thing down here. Yeah. But like, Just so there's definitely like a lot of, a lot of help along the way that mm-hmm. I don't want to like, um, sort of misrepresent and be like, Oh, I just went out and took this risk and like did it all on my own. Like yeah. the psychology, especially like I'm, you know, like D C and D level science person. <laughs> so, uh, I think it's good because like the, you have to learn a certain amount of it to do like hunting and fishing and outdoor activities and, mm-hmm. and foraging. We're talking about foraging, but um, so it's cool. It makes you learn things that you normally would kind of just like avoid. Yeah. Yeah. You took your kids out. You've taken them out hundreds of times, I'm sure. And they're probably experts now on, um, foraging and gleaning. Um, but you said that they're kind of over it now. Is it just, they're at an age maybe where they've seen it, done it. They're growing up. They want to do their own thing. Yeah, I think they they want to do their own thing, and they're older. So you know, I I I hear from parents that have older kids that you know they look back on those things with fondness. Like when I talk about being in my grandma, she's gonna be a hundred this year, and you know her chocolate shop was sold to someone else, and is I don't know a different version of whatever it is. I think it's still in Napa. It's called a vintage sweet shop, but. What I was going to say is like, I think, you know, you look back on it with fondness. So like, I don't know if they would necessarily harvest seaweed or anything like that, Mm -hmm. or whether it would be something, but you know, I could see us going out there 
with, you know, me being way older and them, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe having spouses or kids of their own. Right. And like me maybe showing grandkids or something or, Mm -hmm. or whatever, like, Oh, this is what we used to do. And it would be like a magical kind of moment and connection for us. Mm -hmm. But as far as like the frequency of it, I mean, everyone has their own paths. Like, I don't know why, you know, my parents would have no idea why, like as a kid that grew up in the city, like I can't stand cities. Like I have to, I mean, I live out, you know, west of Paso up by Lake Nascimento and like I just don't I, it's like a sensory overload being around people for me so I, I wouldn't I, I'm glad that I exposed them to that and like my daughter is really likes finding abalone shells and things like that yeah. but yeah I think it maybe just became too familiar to where they're older and they're independent and they want to do their own thing yeah I didn't realize you were way up by Nostimino you do that drive every day yeah wow what do you do on the drive? Do you listen to anything? Yeah, I listen to a lot of weird music. <laughs> like what? Like what? Uh, let's see. What's on? What was on deck this morning? Um, I mean, I would say eighty percent like indie rock, yeah, and then twenty percent um, like just weird like German rap and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Turkish jazz, like just goofy stuff. But I also like have been noticing too, like I I was talking to a friend of mine and like sometimes I find like the music that you listen to really affects your mood. Like so Mm -hmm. if you start listening to too much like haunting, broody, indie rock, like it can be overly depressing. Or like, um, you know, like I was telling my buddy, I was like listening to uh, some like German rap guy and it was like so aggressive. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like sitting there going, why do I, why am I so mad at someone tailgating me right now? And it's like, because you're inputting all that sensory stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I don't know. I, I mostly listen to music, but I'm also one of those just people that sometimes can get chronically lost in my own thoughts. Same. So I think about yeah. a lot of stuff. I process a lot of stuff. And I've had to learn, like, don't go to work after being in a car for an hour thinking about things and then, like, immediately, like, email someone about what you're thinking about. Yep. Because, like, it's way too cathartic and, like, not necessarily. Not good what, and necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's so funny. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who listens to books, audio books, and she listens to them at one and a quarter speed, I think. Um, but she says that if she goes above that and she's like, let's say cleaning the house or something, she gets ramped up all of her behavior, you know, all of her actions are at one and a half speed Mm -hmm. and it's really, it affects her mind and it affects her body. And so, um, yeah, I think what we listen to does make a big difference in our mood for sure. Totally. Um, if it was the last day of your life and you were like, gosh, I've done a good job, which it sounds like you have. Um, what do you think you would eat as your last meal and what would you drink with it and who would be there? That is, that's a tough, that's a really tough question. Yeah. I ever watched the documentary about like the prisoners last meals or whatever. I have always wanted to see that. There's also a book that is, it's a food photographer. Yeah. I saw that. Who took pictures of like the trays of prison food that people eat. Or they recreated like, let's say Al Capone. I think he wanted a steak or something like that. And he wanted a certain kind of drink. So this photographer would recreate it, put it on the tray and take a photo. And the book, it's a hardcover photojournalism book of all these famous people's last meals, which is super dark and wonderful. Like there's something wonderful about capturing that, I think. 
I think that's not this situation, by the way. Not <laughs> <Yeah>. being executed. <laughs> right. This is a celebration. Uh, I want a blindfold and a cigarette and <laughs> bury me face down so the world can kiss my ass. No, that's like some like old French Foreign Legion movie or something. You know, right. you shoot the deserter. No, I don't know. I think. You know, honestly, it would be a potluck. It would probably be one of those mm. potlucks that makes no sense at all. Yeah. Like, um, it, of course, you know, my my kids and my family and, you know, the five close friends that I've whittled my friendships down to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd want everyone around and then everyone to just bring something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then probably just water. Mm-hmm. And everyone else could, you know, drink what they want to drink. But I'd probably want to be well hydrated before I kick the bucket. So, like, I think, you know, it's probably just something simple. So, like, water and, uh, and yeah, just like a weird potluck. I mean, there'd be, like, Swiss chocolate and there'd be a little ramen and there'd be, you know, just stuff that doesn't match that you'd kind of go, well, I don't know. It's not, food isn't always about the food. Of course not rarely what was the third thing was that that was what i would oh water potluck and you know family and close friends obviously don't you love those potlucks where you're like corn salad and cinnamon rolls and i don't know jello and i mean there's something wonderful about that we had at the end of one of my classes at cal poly it was a multicultural uh psychology class and the professor invited everyone to bring you know something from their either their culture that they identify with or their genetic culture, ethnic culture, culture of origin, whatever. And it was like so cool. We sat on the lawn and like we had chocolate, we had dolmas, mm. we had conchas, we had hmm. like different kinds of tropical fruits. Um, like just everything under the sun. And, you know, the taste didn't, match and it was like which is and probably i always feel a little bit of gastric distress after those things oh for sure worth it for sure yeah yeah (laughs) but it was worth it yeah and then i ended up like taking some of the conchas home which that's that's my that's my ultimate weakness is a concha mexican pastry yeah 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 bright pink the brighter the better yep yep spencer it's so kind of you to come and talk to me at my kitchen table and thank you for a wonderful tour on Saturday. It was a wonderful memory to make with my family. And I hope that you get more and more people out to do that. Yeah. Thank you. This has been just an awesome experience. It's definitely very reciprocal. That's it for this episode of the Consumed Podcast. Consumed is produced and edited by me, Jamie Lewis. To learn more about my guests, to see their photos, to learn about live events, yes, live events, to join the Consumed mailing list, and more, visit letsgetconsumed.com. Consumed.